Hello and welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast, where each week we provide a fresh perspective on the events of the week, and we focus especially on the technology driving the energy transition. My name is Peter White, I'm the CEO at Rethink. As usual, I'm joined by our analysts, our hydrogen and wind specialist, Harry Morgan. Hello. Our solar uh, specialist, Andrew Swantanar. Hello there. And our publisher, Simon Thompson he'll pick something up that catches his eye this week. Hello. On the show today, we'll be discussing California's plans to spend billions on extra solar and more energy storage. We talk about turquoise hydrogen from a Seattle-based heat-to-power company, Modern Electron, and finally take a look at a wave energy business that's finding some success. So I'm going to kick things off. And this week, most people saw the headline suggesting that California will rely almost entirely on um, renewable energy. They're planning to uh, adopt 25 gigawatts of further renewables, most of it solar, uh, 15 gigawatts of battery storage, all by 2032. Uh, Some people have cited this as costing $37 billion. They'll end up all the electricity going through the California ISO, 82% of it being non-emitting by 2032. It's quite a plan. It's interesting that they didn't increase the wind by almost anything. It's it's only, it's like a huge block of solar and a huge block of energy storage. And I'm kind of surprised by that. Why why isn't it more cost efficient to build a little bit more wind? And then because that has a more consistent generation profile, you don't have to build 22 gigawatts of batteries. 22 gigawatts, it was 15 as as I... um... Uh, read it out but but well, um, in addition to what they already have yeah harry what what's um you know what's the situation on wind in california is there not much in the way of onshore wind so the the potential for onshore wind in california is, is pretty good it's not um especially lower than anywhere else in the u.s obviously there's some windy states some less windy states but generally i think it's it's more of a nimbyism problem i think we're seeing this quite a lot across the world at the moment that people are sort of veering away from onshore wind in the assumption you've got to tell everyone what nimbyism is um you know just to, not in my backyard yeah absolutely so it's, it's people being protected protective of their lands and and thinking that onshore wind turbines are going to spoil them very much a trumpian mentality of thinking that bird uh, that wind farms are going to be bird graveyards etc i think this this current attitude we've got is very much a let's wait for offshore wind i mean we saw it again in france this week which was one of our, our leading stories that their plan through to 2050 are very based on solar nuclear and offshore wind and it is very much a a preference that while onshore wind could work in in these places that we may as well put solar in the on, onshore in the land that we've got and then wait and put offshore wind specifically floating wind in california and in france when the time comes in sort of the late 2020s yeah, I mean, this plan has got, when, when you dig down into the detail, it's got um, 1.7 gigawatts of uh, offshore wind, but all coming after 2030. It's got uh, nearly the same amount of out-of-state wind, and between them, they add up to the same as in-state wind. So that's that's quite that's quite unambitious, um, really is. And it's like saying, oh, it's it's like the California Utilities Commission saying, not in my backyard. Let's let's move this out to another state and let another state have the problem of building this. I mean, we know that they've got a big out-of-state um, presence in gas. So I mean, it, it's it's all a matter of yeah, you know, not in California. 
Uh, actually, the gas, though, the gas is coming down to a very, very small amount. There is no no new resource build out in gas, just, I think, one megawatt, um, uh, uh, just a token amount. But this is definitely putting all their eggs in one basket. The other news that's crept out this week that not, not many people are talking about is that the largest energy storage project in the world, which has moved around a bit, that title, but is currently the one at Moss Landing, is has now been entirely switched off. It's uh, Phase one had uh, a problem with sprinklers a few weeks ago uh, with an overheating problem. The sprinklers came on and the water doused the um, electrolyte and they had to go in and redesign the, the flooring the floor spaces so that the water doesn't leak to the to the batteries below and now they've had a similar problem on phase two which they'd only just switched on this is when you've only got one or two gigawatts in the whole state and suddenly you're going to have 15 and if you don't solve these um thermal runaway problems and the other thing that, that that causes is well the cost of controlling all that to having automated sprinkler systems to have methods of cooling to have air conditioning to keep the batteries cool in a, in a traditionally hot state it just increases the cost so how much um how much is going to be in the centralized uh, battery uh, projects and how much is going to be in in domestic Oh, oh the, the, these! This is all uh, centralised. This is this is the Queso plan. This is how you know the, the, the California Public Utilities Commission sets targets. Um, they then work through the IRPs of the investor-owned and um, and CCA utilities, and then when they agree those, they then come out with this, which is their uh, state plan. And then Queso has a look at it and says, "Can we connect all these?" facilities up this is a whole two-year program of looking into this and i've got to say the way of looking into it has been has been quite it's been excellent but it's also brutal because what happens is all the utilities say oh let's build some more gas and then they produce some numbers and then the cpuc comes along and says actually these numbers aren't right and it would be cheaper if you produce more solar than the irps reissued and that's an iterative process until they get it right and they've you know, we we knew it from our planning that uh, they they have uh, three scenarios which which require between eleven point three gigawatts and nineteen gigawatts. So when we did our forecast, uh, that was to twenty thirty. When we did our forecast for global energy storage, that that was what we expected from California, somewhere between those two numbers. And, and that number has now just gone up, or it's solidified at fifteen. To me, this seems to be definitely uh, all the eggs in one basket not not enough emphasis on wind at all not early enough because because when i hear about a battery project catching fire it, it reminds me of some other problems on california's grid i mean they have wildfires that interrupt <laughs> the grid and i i was talking to a, some american for an interview and he was saying oh we've got another grid thing and i said oh another wildfire and he said no this time it's the wind knocking trees down onto the wires unfortunately i laughed a bit um which is a bit rude um but yeah, uh, and whenever Californians hear about this sort of thing, it's just going to push their domestic purchases. And I think there's quite a lot of people moving out of the state. So maybe these numbers aren't as ambitious for wind as you'd like, but they probably will suffice uh, between the immigration and the domestic uh, deployments. I, I don't think this is about um, what's actually get going to happen. I think this is really about coming up with a viable plan. And I think they know what they're doing with solar. They've done a lot of solar. Um, they, they're they leading in battery. And so that's what the 
current plan is i mean we see we've seen the beginning of long duration storage being planned here and a little bit of uh, demand response being planned but fundamentally as that wind once they get more comfortable with the wind and as investors get more comfortable with the wind and as more projects are developed i think we'll see this plan shift over time to embrace more wind and but here's the thing i really um the battery the energy storage that's battery will become less of it will be at lithium ion i think we're going to see um the, you know this is just this is the third incident major incident there was one previously in arizona which actually was a fire around lithium-ion batteries and they are investors are just saying no that's fine we'll we'll put the money up for that it'll be fine it's lithium-ion we understand it but it's not uh, it's going to cause issues with price it's going to cause issues with insurance and in the hotter states especially fires are as you say can turn into wildfires so i think this um I think the obsession with lithium iron may get broken if there are any more incidents here. And some of the other chemistries, um, which are perhaps less efficient in that they need more physical space, but they are so much better uh, when it comes to um, uh, safety. Is that vanadium flow? Uh, no, I'm not really vanadium flow. I mean, I, I think vanadium flow has uh, an opportunity. Um, I haven't seen a, re a renaissance in vanadium flow. I haven't seen much in the way installed in the last two years. There is there is stuff out there. I would think that you're looking at uh, kind of nickel hydrogen and um, iron oxide as, as two leading candidates. And there are other chemistries uh, in there. And it's a matter of none of those have volume and none of those have maturity yet. In two years' time, they'll have a couple of gigawatts in, you know, on the ground and people will be able to go and look at it and say, actually, this is... You know, still it's slightly more expensive than lithium ion, but then again, I don't need the uh, I don't need the temperature control, I don't need the safety, I don't need the, the fire break outside, I don't need the air conditioning. Actually, this is cheaper, but but they they just need a couple of years of of, of being mature. The first ones to strike big deals um, will will end up with um, getting a big chunk of this fifteen gigawatts. I think. I mean, let's say big chunk, twenty percent, something like that. I think that's that's feasible over time because it's not been specified that this has to be lithium ion. It's just been specified this is battery storage. The utilities themselves will make those decisions. And, and the duration is still at four hours, isn't it? Duration on all, all of those projects is four hours. There's a long duration storage uh, set at eight hours that they want one gigawatt um, come 2028. I mean, we know that they've been talking about that. I'm not sure if this Hydrostore projects, there's more than that in Hydrostore projects in California. So uh, I'm not quite sure where they fit in, um, whether they're being squeezed into. Hydrostore is compressed air uh, from a Canadian company. And that's definitely has firm contracts in California, uh, certainly pilots, and we understand them to be firm contracts. So I'm not sure if they fit into long duration or whether they're fitting into. Um, into uh, the battery storage. But I, I don't see this all ending up as lithium iron. I, I see a, a, a significant chunk. Certainly, you can build, go back to how our computers are designed. In a, in a large computer these days, there are seven or eight layers of memory. Um, and the biggest and most uh, and the cheapest is on the outside. And the, and the most immediate is, is close to the processor. And I, th I see that that's the way battery uh, could develop. 
that we end up with um, something that front ends it all that's utterly reliable and bulk solid and never fails but it might be a bit more expensive and then you you move to cheaper storage that that might not be quite so reactive that that front ends that, that you know every every time you have uh, something chopping and changing on the grid you you have the first le level of storage uh, handling it and, and i absolutely believe andrew so from your question that as um we get increased rooftop solar we'll get increased rooftop battery increased battery from the community i think that will play a part in this but it's not in this plan let's move on yeah let's talk about um turquoise turquoise hydrogen uh, i always thought turquoise hydrogen harry was from um from pyrolysis is, is that what um modern electrons doing or is it slightly different yeah, so that is what Modern Electron are doing. The news this week was that the company's received uh, around $30 million of funding as part of its Series B uh, funding. It's interesting you're talking about, obviously, rooftop zones sort of off, behind the meter, if you like, energy production, because that's almost the approach that Modern Electron are taking. Um, they're looking to create turquoise hydrogen production units and make them modular and make them the consumer side. So the idea would be that you're receiving gas from the grid you're, and you're using that to create hydrogen at your home where you can then either use it in a boiler or you can use it to create power. And, and, does, the, and does the CO2 just drift off into the air or are we doing something with that? So so turquoise hydrogen um, is is done through pyrolysis. So that's where you basically you use natural gas, pretty extreme temperatures in the absence of oxygen. So you create hydrogen instead of creating CO2, because obviously there's no O2 in the, in the reaction, you, um, it, you create uh, solid carbon. Uh, so right. something similar to graphite, which you can create, which you can discard, or you can sell. Um, it's yeah, but I mean, does that does that kind of clog up the works? So you know, you just have soot all over the place, or do you? Does it form in a as a solid char? It, it forms as a solid char in theory. Um, around one to two kilograms per day um, is what Modern Electron are saying. So that's what you would create, and then theoretically, you'd, it would build up, and you'd, you'd then someone would come and collect it, or you'd or just simply throw it away or get it recycled. The Interesting thing is really Modern Electron's business model. Um, and I, because I initially heard about it and thought this makes no sense. Why would you, why would you use gas to create hydrogen to create electricity at your home? But I think it's more of a case of creating a business model for the company's heat to electricity uh, aspect, really. So the company historically has been focused on this small thermionic converter, which um, when you've got your waste heat from your boiler, it will use that to create electricity. So this new focus on hydrogen production, I think, is a way that they can then partner with hydrogen boilers to create heat and power systems from the same system. It's um, it's just very interesting that they've chosen to go with turquoise hydrogen rather than uh, green hydrogen. I'd have very so, much. So the electricity they create at spare is is used to create hydrogen. No, no. So um, so the gas. So there's no electricity really used to actually power the process. It's the natural gas used as a feedstock that comes in from the natural gas grid. What temperature does, does this happen at? Uh, it, it's a high temperature. Um, I think it's something around 800 degrees Celsius. Um, and that's where your, where your uh, boiler is in your house? In theory, they've kept it very quiet about exactly what they're doing. Maybe this is low temperature pyrosis, which um, is something that people have tried to commercialize in the past, although they have struggled. It's something that obviously you wouldn't want a, a, a reaction of that heat happening inside your house. So I imagine it would be decentralized outside the house, but it's, it's an interesting concept. Well, as long as the heat is is you know well contained, I mean, I, I think people know how to contain that type of temperature quite easily. As you say, um, 
if it's prone to accident, well, then it's a dead technology. So I don't think I'm sure that they will have thought through that. Um, and uh, it, it will be one of those things where where you put your in fact, where you put your lithium-ion battery at right now, outside in the garage or you know against the wall outside. Yeah, definitely. And I think, the, and the idea of a modular system where you've got a coexistence of clean power and clean heat is is a really strong route to market. But the problem is, and I, I think especially with this turquoise hydrogen, is that it doesn't account for the upstream emissions from the natural gas infrastructure. So that's something that um, it can account for ten kilograms of CO two per day per kilogram of of hydrogen. Obviously, that's um, that's something that should really rule it out on its own but i think the reason they're focusing on turquoise hydrogen is to is because they they're acknowledging that governments really are dithering on whether or not hydrogen is going to be used within heating uh, obviously it's around six times less efficient than electric heat pumps in some markets it's it's a way that you can sort of build a business model based on gas because gas realistically will be part of the, part of many heating solutions for quite a few years to come it might be that someone's come along and just said, we need to use this gas. Can you help us with your process? And they've changed their business model to accommodate it. And, and maybe this has a place in the market, but it sounds like we've got to watch it and see. Yeah, I don't think it's complete. I don't think it's completely a stupid idea. I think obviously if they can build a model based on creating this waste to heat, um, this waste heat to electricity in a decentralized way, um, using the gas grid and then it, in a sort of a hydrogen ready way so that when hydrogen boilers are, are up and running and when the hydrogen grid is up and running then that I think is a really good route to market because at that point they could have many units already installed and they already have sort of a leading market share so rather than waiting for the hydrogen market to come to them they're creating a market for the hydrogen market for the hydrogen place to come to. It sounds like it's a, as I say a wait and see situation and see if their revenues suddenly uh, peak. If you happen to be a gas distributor, um, you might well partner with a company like this to try and sustain your business model for as long as possible. Absolutely. I mean, I, I personally would love to see them part, partner with a modular electrolyzer company because I think then if you can create an off-the-grid modular electrolyzer, create hydrogen, it go, goes through your boiler, you've got your heating at home, and then you're getting a little bit of electricity from that as well. Then I think that's well, there's quite a few a few efforts out there where the idea is to use hydrogen in a reversible um, fuel cell and store hydrogen around the property, mostly to generate electricity. And then, of course, you can use it to power heat pumps rather than a boiler. So I think that's I mean, there is a, there is definitely going to be a business model there at some stage. But I'm not sure if this is going to be with pyrolysis. Um, it depends, as you say, what temperature it happens at. Yeah, I think long-term pyrolysis probably won't be a solution to creating hydrogen. Um, but I think for modern electron, it could potentially provide a good route to market um, to actually build out a large number of uh, small modular units early on. Okay. Now, um, just moving on, I just want to talk to Andres a bit about Sea um, Power, uh, which is a company that seems to be finding some success from wave energy. Now, we've we set uh, Andres the task of, of uh, monitoring wave energy he's not written he's not been out find much that's making money uh, at the moment uh, tell us about sea uh, power or is it columbia power andres uh it's it's columbia power but i think there's another company with that name so they're also they also call themselves sea power for that reason yeah you, you told me a while back i i complained oh, i'm bored of just writing about solar and and what else can I do? And you said, do, do wave power and tidal power. And, and I looked at it and I thought, oh, goodness, there's not much going on. But this, this um, interview I, I had changed my mind a bit 
because this guy, this company, originally wanted to do utility scale stuff, or, which is not, I mean, the, the individual machines they would be using for that aren't gigantic. They would be, I think, 300 kilowatts or up to the megawatt range, but of course you can put an array of them down. Now, the problem with doing utility scale is that you're competing with every other energy source to, to, to be commercially worthwhile. So what they ended up doing, guided by uh, Department of Defense uh, contracts, is uh, very remote stuff, small small scale distributed. Uh, I spoke to Reinst Lesserman, the uh, CEO, and uh, and he he called it the low power segment. So right out in the ocean uh, with remote deployments. What, of, what do you need energy for right out in the ocean? Sensors. Uh, I mean, it's the Department of Defense. So one, one aspect is military sensors. Okay. Um, I guess there's also surveying and you know, scientific research and, and that kind of monitoring. So it, it's not by itself a, a totally gigantic segment, but there's there's no competition. Uh, the existing way things are done involve um, you know, vehicles with uh, diesel generators or single-use batteries. Um, so you, you talked about unmanned vehicles in this article. So they were powered, what, by a diesel generator on the surface and connected by a cable? Um, I, I think they, they would probably be battery-powered. Sometimes it was a disposable battery, so they're shifting. To okay, so so if if you've got a, a so what they've done is found a very highly specialised market where you've got um, vessels travelling either on the surface or under under the sea, which need access to power, and they've brought down the cost of power and taken it away from diesel by using these wave powers. Now the thing that that implies to me is that they probably aren't very doing that well on the cost curve on their on their levelized cost of energy they're solving a puzzle and and that that people were it's a bit like space flight you know we, we'll put we've got to put something in space what can we use i oh, will use solar and it was used solar was used in space a long time before it was used uh, successfully and commercially viably in on on the earth and, and i think the satellite solar is is like gallium arsenide or something and it's still not cost effective for, for what we do down here and that's what this is but it, it lets him develop his his model it lets him understand um, the power base better it lets him get to the volumes where he can make manufacture them for much much less that's what this is it's a it's a, a kind of small market where he might he can make money for a while stabilize the business and then have another go um, at coming back to the proper power market it's quite it's quite interesting because I think this this approach to wave power I think it seems to be people who've ling people who were focusing on utility scale power just sort of scaling down scaling down to smaller and smaller operations this just seems to be really small niche points of demand that they're trying to focus on whereas I think if you're looking at the future of wave energy I think there's probably two routes really that you can look at you've got sort of niche markets so I suppose that's almost similar where you're looking at the islands where there's not necessarily a huge uh, wind resource or, or enough space really to, to house a lot of solar power. And I know that companies like Waveswell are looking at that a lot with with pilot projects in Australia. But I think, as I see it, I think the biggest opportunity for wave power is pairing with offshore wind and actually having wave power units attached to the, the platforms of floating wind turbines and actually generating an additional few megawatts basically from these these units where you've already got the infrastructure there, you've already got the transmission lines there. So that then is an opportunity to actually reduce the levelized cost of energy of float of hybridized floating wind and wave power rather than um, wave power being its own entity. I think, I think realistically, wave power would have taken off by now 
if it was to if it was going to be a utility scale offering. Uh, and and the big thing there is that uh, with offshore wind, I mean, the last time I looked at a map of offshore wind farms in the North Sea for like Belgium, it was looking very crowded. Uh, because you have to keep the turbines away from each other, otherwise they you know, they take the energy from the wind, and then the next one, any anything nearby, doesn't have as much. So I asked uh, I asked him if um, if there's a wake effect for for wave installations, and he said there isn't one that they can find. So you can cram way more power into a given um, into a given place, and I think that would be quite useful. I mean, that's that's an interesting concept. I mean, there's, they've not really tested um, wave power units at, in large arrays like they have with wind turbines. And I mean, the wake effect is only it's only several percent of the output of you only lose sort of a couple of percent of output off each turbine as you go sort of further and further downwind. So I wouldn't say it's a massive advantage that wave power have over over wind power, but I do think that it's something that I just think that pairing wave power with wind power potentially is something that is a bit of a no brainer. And I don't know necessarily why more wave power companies aren't focusing on it. All the wave designs, I'm fascinated by it. I mean, I've seen about 20 different wave designs, and they all um, a bit Heath Robinson. Uh, listeners might not know that who that is. It's a, it's a it's a cartoonist who used to draw these complicated, fiddly devices, which were improbable. And um, that, that's how it's always viewed to me. But someone somewhere is going to um, take this to scale, and, and if it, if it goes to scale, then the LCOE will drop. But do you think the, the consolidation in design types has to happen before that commercialization can occur? Uh, yeah, I don't know, but I mean, it is. It's just there's a feeling that there's got it's got to contribute something along the way. The problem is, so your 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 approach doing doing around wind farms that's a good one in the same way that floating solar fits perfectly on the reservoir of a dam. Because you know it's all everything else is already in place, so that that might be where it gets its break. But again, the, the, this um, device sitting on the, the the surface of the waves effectively competes with uh, floating solar. In some parts of the world, in the tropics, um, the waves don't seem to be very high, and there are a lot of island nations like Indonesia who could could benefit from having floating solar around islands the power islands but there are other parts of the world where the the, the sea's a lot choppier and the wave is much more predictable um and it wouldn't break unlike you know floating solar so uh, i think it could be part of the puzzle one day it's just no one solved it yet and i think you're right it's this dispersal across many 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 different designs of all the brain power in the sector that is that causes the problem so, Simon, uh -huh. you read the issue. Um, there's lots more in the issue than what we talk about on these podcasts. Is there anything that um, that kind of caught your eye? Yes, I've been scrolling down the World of Renewables section this week, our worth noting uh, part. And there's one thing that caught my eye, and it was about and rising energy prices. And, uh, and BP is selling natural gas uh, f away from British consumers who uh, are having a bad enough time paying these high prices and getting there, apparently getting BP, getting the best price elsewhere in continental Europe. And uh, I think that's disgraceful. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's it's a British firm. It, it's it, it's it's a glo I mean, it's but it's a global business. Um, you know, okay. number one, that, okay. that, that that that's well understood that the way to sell natural gas 
is to sell um, it through the, um, uh, the the European gas hub. That's pretty much how everything. So the story you're actually talking about is actually the the new piece of information is is the idea that was picked up by some uh, national UK newspapers that. It's our part of the North Sea, and if the gas comes from our part of the North Sea, surely we can have that gas for Britain, and it should. The problem is, at what price? Um, and if you're going to sell through the gas hub, and you're going to mandate that the gas in your territory comes to you in the bad times, what happens in the good times when you want to sell it overseas? I, I, I think the, that that's a, a group of uh, MPs suggesting that a law like this is made without really thinking it through and i think it's i think it's also um again typical from politicians who don't know how the energy industry works so they're actually particularly worried about the 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 high price of gas in the uk increasing the cost of electricity and that's because they don't understand how the electricity capacity auction system works and how high gas prices only really affect electricity prices if um if the highest uh, if the strike price for um, an auction is set by the highest um cost and that that they um that they end up with natural gas now being the highest cost setting the auction price there's all sorts of confusing things said about this that they they, they say well in which case let's invest in more gas in the north sea but when you look at the um, either uh, um, wells that have been turned off or potential new wells and how much gas they have in them, they're mostly not economic if the price of gas comes down. So you could start um, digging new wells, you could open up some old wells, you could get some gas, and then suddenly the price of gas could come down globally and those wouldn't be viable and you'd have to close them again and the costs would be borne by the companies so i I don't think any of that rhetoric um works uh in the real energy world i think it's just something that politicians um say to the press it's a bit like saying oh we should invest in nuclear if we're france because we can do it uh, we're really good at it and then it turns out yeah but it's still really really expensive the best answer to this is to get off gas you know and you can't do that immediately in the next four to five or six years, there is no question that the UK, Germany, all of Europe, Northern Europe as well, are all going to use more gas and that China's using more gas and it's a competition. Anyway, that's a story on the website. The links are in the description for all of these stories. There's hundreds of other interesting items on the uh, website and we'll be here again next Friday taking apart the moves that happen out on the energy market and trying to explain them as best we can to you. Thank you.